And now, coming to you live from the Gresham Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf on the Once a Fortnight Coot Street Podcast! And for those listeners who didn't pick up the subtle illusion which Jonathan made in his slightly altered but always colorful introduction, Once a Fortnight is our new goal. We're going to look at 2020 as, since the number two is very prominent in the year, that every two weeks, we will do one podcast. Deeply, so, d- you know, you, we've talked this through in depth, haven't we? For like, like yeah, minutes we, in we, a row. We, we've actually spent, I would say, the better part of a, of a glass of wine talking about this. That's right, yes. So, uh, I mean, working on the idea that really going away for three months doesn't make anybody happy. And we need to tie ourselves back to a schedule. And right now, once a week is seeming a little bit heavy. So we're trying to stick to once every two weeks. So you get us now. And then you get next week off, and then we'll be back the week after. So how have you been, Gary? I've been reading. I've been enjoying some new things. And I've been uh, thinking about the variety or the, the, the things I'm looking at now uh, are, are, are novels that are not necessarily uh, by people in science fiction. The one I'm thinking about specifically, and I've uh, just this minute finished it, is called Vanished Birds by uh, Simon Perez. Which is beautifully written, and it's uh, one of these novels that comes from a kind of lit- – it looks like the author comes from a literary MFA tradition. Uh, there's a substantial amount of evidence in it that at some point he really enjoyed Le Guin and probably especially Alfred Bester and maybe uh, Delaney. But there's also a sense in which some of the standard furnishings of science fiction uh, are – somewhat awkwardly handled. Yeah. Um, and, and, and this is something I see again and again, where you see um, a novel which is very powerful in many of its uh, strongest elements. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's a little bit awkward when it comes to science fiction. I saw that with the Margaret Atwood novels. Yeah. When Margaret Atwood started describing the kind of biological uh, uh, creations that uh, were behind the Oryx and Crake novels, it was kind of awkward. It was a bit awkward. As long as she stayed with characters, as long as she stayed with adventures, uh, it was fine. And, and one of the pluses about Margaret Atwood is that she's always been pretty good at plotting as well as character. Um, and this one is, is it's, I'm, I'm going to end up writing a good review of it, I think. But it strikes me as interesting that it's one of these novels that you don't know how it's going to be reacted to by the science fiction community. I read one review, for example, and I think it was a review in Locus Online, that basically said this should be on all the awards ballots next year. Um, and I don't have an opinion on that, but I do have a suspicion that it won't be, because I don't think this novel has made much of a splash within the science fiction community as of yet. Well, in fairness, it hasn't been published yet, Gary. Um, oh, it hasn't? I, I haven't finished no. a copy of it. it seems <laughs> no. To be, no, come on. Where is it? It Where's has not copy? been published yet, I'm sure. I'm looking. I'm looking up my promo letter on it as we speak. At January fourteenth. It's been. It's been out for all of twelve days. Oh, sorry, everybody. That was a pile of books collapsing in the background. I should edit that out as I tried to no, get I, my copy of Vanished Birds, which you all should have. Look, let's let's talk about this book properly. We weren't planning to. I haven't read it yet, no. but. First of all, raved about by Joe Walton just recently over yeah. on Tor.com, saying that it was wonderful and brilliant. As you say, quite rightly, our colleague uh, Paul Filippo has given mm-hmm. The Vanished Birds by Simon Jimenez 
a very positive review. It's come out from Del Rey, a classic science fiction publisher and imprint. Mm. And it's it's marketed. I got to tell you, it's quite an interesting piece of marketing for, uh, in and of itself because it's not a straight genre kind of cover. It's a literary illus- illusory kind of cover, but it does right. talk about the language around it. Talks about it being science fiction and being out in space. So, for, I right. guess for the benefits of the readers, you've read it. What's the book about? Um. Well, first of all, the book takes place in a number of different time frames. But essentially, well, to, to actually say what the book is about would be to give away the big secret in the book. Well, that, which, okay. Do, do your version of blurb text then for it. Describe uh, the book. Okay. This is a book which takes place in a far future in which the uh, pl- planets have been colonized, but most of inhabited spaces, gigantic corporate space habitats because earth has become uninhabitable and one of the main characters in the uh novel is a space captain uh who has uh, made a career of basically being a, 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 a basically transporting goods she's basically a trucker in space um and she she of course only ages uh one year for every 15 or 20 years from the very so there's kind of sense of alienation about that and into her life comes a mysterious young boy. Um, and what happens to the boy is the core arc of the novel. But within that, there are some brilliantly done things. The first chapter, for example, which is not a spoiler, unless you think the first chapter can be spoiled, um, introduces us to another character who lives on one of these planets that produces crops. And every 15 years, the company sends a spaceship to pick up their crops. And the, the young man, the boy who we're introduced to, uh, meets this woman from outer space. Um, and then when he's seven or eight years old and meets her again 15 years, the first chapter takes us through this entire character's life story until he's in his 80s and sees her for the last time. And it's, it's like a prelude. It's like a little uh, prologue to the whole thing. It could easily have been published as a separate story. And the flavor of that opening story is very much the flavor of a Le Guin Hainish story. And it's very well done. And there are other parts, uh, most of the novel, I, I should say, is very well done. My concern is, since it doesn't come with any, uh, it, it comes with some great reviews, and it's got blurbs from Indra Das and from uh, Kate Elliott. The rest of the blurbs are Publishers Weekly and Booklist and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Is it going to catch the attention of the science fiction readership? And my argument is this, science fiction Readers and writers and editors um, and critics, such as ourselves, frequently and frequently are justified in complaining that the mainstream media, that the newspapers, the New York Times, whatever, the London uh, the Times Literary Supplement, tends to ignore literary science fiction because they don't want us to be literary. I'm concerned that science fiction readership may do the reverse, that something that looks too literary on the surface may not be picked up by science fiction readers because they don't see it's science fiction bona fides. And I hope I'm wrong about that. But is that are you picking that feeling up from the story that you're reading or from the packaging that you're seeing? Um, a little bit of both. Um, the story that I'm reading begins brilliantly. There are there's a there's at least one moment of awkward exposition in it. Mm-hmm. Um, there is literally a, a 
an orientation lecture given by somebody. Here you are at the space station. It was, it was, it was a kind of info dump that we're told not to do. It's not intrusive. It doesn't destroy the rhythm of it. But there are moments like that that um, strike me as, as, as being not the way a veteran science fiction writer would handle the issue. It's not a major issue. The packaging, I think, is trying to do two things at once. I think the packaging is trying to make the book look very much like a mainstream novel, mainstream cover, uh, only a couple of uh, mainstream blurbs. And I hope that the attention it gets from um, from Paul Filippo and from Joe Walton and eventually from from me and my column will be enough to get people to pick it up. But I, I, I do worry about people who come into science fiction or fantasy or horror with literary cooties. It's almost the reverse of the science fiction cooties that we hear about all the time. I'm not convinced. I, I, I'm not convinced by your argument whatsoever. I think it's it feels like a 20th century kind of argument. Because I look at that and you know what I see? Hmm. I see a straight genre publisher trying to publish a science fiction book for the 21st century in a way that it will appeal to people who read science fiction who don't see themselves as being science fiction readers. And I think the book works very well at that level. You don't need to know and anything about And that's a mega level. I mean, you can sell a lot of books oh, yeah. to a lot of readers. Yeah. I mean, you I may mean, or may not end up on a nebula ballot, but you may sell 100,000 copies and be one of the de- debuts of the year. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's also one of these novels that has um, a couple of levels of readership. Science fiction readers are going to see some terms, some specific concepts in this that are clearly borrowed from a very famous science fiction novel. And that those hundred thousand mainstream readers yeah. probably won't see that. Yeah, uh, and both will have valid experiences of the novel. Uh, I guess my point is that even though this does look like a mainstream novel, it's being marketed to a mainstream audience. It's not the kind of um, what am I going to say? Uh, formula thriller disguised as space opera. Space opera. I get a lot yeah. of these things in the mail. Yeah. It's not one of those things. It is a serious novel. And I think it can be taken seriously both as a science fiction novel and as a piece of frequently very gorgeous writing. Um, but uh, well, well, we'll have to wait and see. You're right. It's only been out a week or so here, so it's um, it's it, it, it's life is has yet to be determined. It's interesting because uh, to, to that we've stumbled onto talking about this book when it wasn't our intention. Uh-huh. Because no. I was reading a column in the Guardian this morning in their book section about, you know, 10 debuts to look forward to for 2020, that kind of thing, which mm-hmm. are exactly the kind of things you tend to get in literary mainstream papers and we don't do much of in science fiction. And it strikes me that this is exactly one of those books. It is the kind of debut that you would want to look forward to. I mean, the health of the field is based around getting strong new writers coming in all the time. Yeah. One of the strengths of 2019 is we had a, a, a batch of really strong debuts you know, uh, this strikes me as one. Uh, there's a book co- that you have a copy of already or should have, Hao ha- uh, Fang's uh, Vagabond from Saga. Vagabond. That looks like that. it is. Yeah. Juliet Wade has her debut novel coming out this year, uh, mm-hmm. I think next month, in fact. I know that E. Lily Yu has her de- debut in Train, and that's something we've been waiting for for years. So giving space for these debuts to... Uh, find their, their their fate is really important. What I actually thought while you're talking about this book as well is, this book strikes me, and I might be wrong not having read it yet, so what do I know, mm-hmm. as the kind of book that could have shown up in Terry Carr's New Age Science Fiction Specials in the 1980s, 
not the actual, which obviously it's a contemporary book, but the, that sort of space. I think when you think of things like Lucius Shepard or, or Le Guin for that matter, yes. And I think one of the reasons for that is, is not simply a compliment to Terry Carr's amazing taste back then, but the fact that I don't think a novel like this would have had a chance anywhere other than that. Uh, I don't think that uh, any no science fiction publisher in the 1980s would have tried to mainstream this uh, the way Delroy seems to be trying to mainstream it. And most mainstream publishers simply would stay away from it. Um, I think I think the vocabulary of science fiction in the story is by now accessible to a much wider audience. Mm. And I think it's true that the science fiction audience, if itself identifies as a small sort of uh, uh, isolated group uh that, that that's no longer true. There are enormous numbers of people who have learned science fiction from the Expanse, from the Star yeah, Wars yeah. movies, from Star Trek, and so forth. So so now you can write Charles Yu how to live safely in a science fictional universe kind of thing, and everybody knows what it means now. And that, that was certainly not true in the 1980s when Terry Carr was doing the A specials. I guess what my question for you, you then is, do you think that there is a space – for a debut science fiction novel in 2020 by a, per, by a person of color taking a slantways look at the field to actually run away and be successful. I mean, this book to me looks to me like if people give it a chance, and I think they should, it's certainly on my mm-hmm. definitely get this read before you go back to work list, um, that, that it could be, what you know, sort of, if not a breakaway hit of the year, one of those really successful debuts. I mean, books like last year's um, Gideon the Ninth, which became a mm-hmm. bit of a viral kind of sensation, that kind of thing you can't predict. But this looks like it could be a, a major book for the year. It could be. Uh, and it, uh, I don't know exactly how to do this. I mean, one of the... One of the questions, every time I talk to publicists at any of, of any of the publishers that I know anyway, um, they have the same problem. There is there's no formula for this sort of thing. Uh, there's there's no way of knowing how to make a particular novel a breakout novel. Um, I'm guessing that it's getting uh, very good attention from the science fiction community, from the science fiction critical community, at least, and science fiction readers, writers. We don't know how readers are going to accept it. And I don't, the, the, the advanced reviews from Kirkus and PW are very good. So it's getting a good deal of mainstream attention. So it could become one of the big books of the year. Absolutely. Well, and okay. it's one which, and, until I read it, until I read it, I would not have guessed that. Okay. Um, what, what, there's, what, there's, there's about a thousand people who listen to the Cood Street podcast, Gary. If you're going to say to them, if you like this, then you'll like that. What's the this that you'd like to, to end up liking, um, the Vanished Birds. Uh, as I mentioned, there's one novel I'm not going to mention because it probably would give too much away of a plot point. I would say to go back to classic science fiction, if you like Le Guin's The Dispossessed, this would be a very appealing book. If you if you liked any of the Hainish Worlds books, and if you liked um, some of the 1960s and 70s Samuel R. Delaney, that you would like this book. Okay, so basically if you're looking for a 21st century take on that classic new wave feel from major novelists of the time, this mm. could be something for you. So go right. out, listeners, track it down at your bookstore, at your library, have a read, jump onto our Facebook page and um, let us know what you think. Well, so, one of the things about any novel like this that comes out, and I'm looking forward to reading Vagabonds for the same reason, is 
it's impossible to predict how people are going to respond to the same sort of thing. It's the same thing when a movie comes out. Yeah. I and mean, every time so I've not seen any of the Mandalorian, but from what I've seen on Twitter and Facebook and emails from friends, I am now convinced that I really can't wait to see it. And I don't ever want to see any of it whatsoever. Yeah, no, fair. I mean, fair. I think that, that that's, I mean, I've seen all of the Mandalorian and I think I may have uh-huh. expressed my opinion on it here before. Uh, I am in the curious position of not counting myself as a Star Wars fan, but watching Star Wars. And well, that is, okay. I think a lot of the payoff for The Mandalorian is on being a Star Wars fan. You know, I was listening to a discussion of The Mandalorian just recently, and a lot of the payoff was deep detail on and understanding things. I just watched the first episode of Picard, Star Trek Picard, was, uh, mm-hmm. which has come out, well, here in Australia on Amazon Prime. And I enjoyed it, but I'm aware since I did not like or watch Star Trek Next Generation that there's all kinds of things happening that I have no idea about and genuinely don't care much about. But I still found it an enjoyable piece of television. Well, that raises an interesting question, which we actually were thinking about talking about before we recorded the podcast. And that is, what does it mean to be a fan? Because I don't consider myself a Star Wars fan in the sense of, no, I don't know the whole mythology. I'm not sure who all the aunts and uncles are and that sort of thing. And the same thing's true with Picard, with with the Star Trek series. Um, I was probably a Star Trek fan during the original series and the first four or five movies after that. Um, And the same thing probably was true with Star Wars. But when fandom reaches a point of uh, hermetic philosophy where you have to know all kinds of details in order to have a discussion, I just found myself, when this would happen at a bar or at a convention or something, I would just find myself silently nodding because I had no idea what they were talking about. There's an interesting conversation about this on the latest episode of Charlie Jane Anders and Annalie Newitz says Our Opinions Are Correct. And mm-hmm. I'll try to remember to put a link to it in the show notes where they talk about Star Wars. Um and they talk about the idea that, you know, you shouldn't classify or quantify some, someone else's fandom. And I think that's correct. Yeah, I think when that's I, true. This isn't about gatekeeping. My, but I realized when I listened to them that my own metric for being a fan is a sort of weak source kind of metric. And it's this. If you care enough about something to remember details of it and you get excited about a new installment of it, then you're a fan. Okay, that seems simple enough. Um, you know, it's like if mean- you care about Star Wars The Last Jedi coming out and you remembered mm-hmm. even that, you know, C-3PO was a robot, then you're a fan. Well, and I think you can be – I think there are different levels of fandom. Of course there are. They're, 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 they're clearly the fans who uh, who have – all the paraphernalia, all the all the games, all the things that go with Star Trek and Star Wars. The the people who actually buy the four hundred and fifty dollar Lego Death Star and and build it in their basement. That's the kind of fan that I never was. I think I was by those standards. I've never been a good fan of anything. Uh, you're right. When I was very very young, and I'm actually old enough to have been excited about new Ray Bradbury books coming out before. The new Ray Bradbury books that were coming out weren't the ones that you got excited about, <laughs> uh, which which happened after a while. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I was I, I I considered myself a follower at least of um, 
of, of Asimov, of, of, of Frank Herbert, of Heinlein, of Le Guin, of uh, uh, any, any any number of writers up through the eighties and nineties, and uh, and today I will uh, jump at a new Kim Stanley Robinson novel because I'm pretty sure I know it will be good. At this point, I think I'm ready to jump at a new N.K. Jemison novel uh, because because I expect to be surprised. I expect to have satisfactions that I recognize and new things that I didn't expect. So does that mean that you now, if someone said there's a new book, by, you know, there's a new book by Stan Robinson coming out and here's a copy, not that you'd be interested, but you'd get a bit excited about getting hold of it. Absolutely. Because, I mean, I think that's enough of it. I mean, I, I look and I think, because I tried to ask myself after this, like, what am I actually a fan of? Who, you know, who am I a fan of? You know, once upon a time, that was very easy. You know, I was a fan of Frank Herbert and Isaac Asimov and Robert mm-hmm. Heinlein. I don't think I'd count myself as particularly a fan of any of them anymore because I found that, sadly, maybe it says something about a flaw in my personality, but my fandom is transitory, you know. Well, uh Mm-hmm. Probably, I, I, no, I think, I, go ahead, yeah. finish your thought. Probably finish the only writer that I've stayed consistently a fan of in some ways for the last 30 years is Terry Pratchett. Okay, Terry Pratchett's an interesting example because if you want to go back almost a century, that kind of fandom where you can reread Terry Pratchett with the same enjoyment that you started out with, that kind of fandom started out with people like P.G. Woodhouse, sure. for heaven's sake, or, or possibly even going back further than Mark Twain. That's... That's a kind of fandom which I very seldom, uh, I, I, I very seldom achieve that level of fandom. But I could reread. I've not even read, to be honest, all of Terry Pratchett. Now Dale is my partner is in the other room, and she will kill me if she hears me. No, I've no, I, I haven't read them all. There's those because there's a bunch of posthumous children's books I've not read, and then there are the last two main novels, Raising Steam and the final Tiffany Aching book, which sit. Which sit there and I just look at them warily and go, no, I don't think I need to read The Decline. No, and I don't think that you need probably to read the Stephen Baxter collaborations if you're expecting them to be Terry Pratchett novels. But, but I, but, yeah, but, but the, um, but the people, again, I, I'm intimidated by all these social media posts about how we have to reread this and the question, what book do you reread every year because you need it for sustenance? I don't read any book year to year. I mean, there, there's not a single book that I've reread uh, more than once every five or six years, and then it may be something. It may not be a science fiction novel. Probably at least once a decade I read Catch-22, uh, and it still strikes me as being as funny as it was when I read it, and as disturbing. And, and what I recall of Terry Pratchett is that, but but no, the idea of going back and rereading a book uh, every year, and, and if you have enough books that you reread every year, you won't ever read any new books. In, in sort of, well, as an observation, you and I are terrible fans, and we're You're terrible so fans, fans because right? of our circumstances. We are we put us we have voluntarily put ourselves in a position where we have to read new, and uh-huh. new drives what we read. Um, and that's fine, but it does mean that j- just sort of ha- having – I mean, imagine a year where the only driver of what you read was what you were interested in. Well, that's that's what I mean about – that's what nostalgia can do to you. You only read what you know you're going to like, and, and that's only one aspect of fanish behavior. We're talking about fan yeah. reading. 
fan behavior is something I've been told. I've been told by well-known writers that I'm a really bad fan. Oh, why? Um, well, <laughs> because and by whom? Well, I, I I will tell you by whom after we finish recording the podcast. But but the situation was this: I've had. Um, and I never remember when I'm going to a convention to take piles of books to get autographed. No, I don't I know. Have, I have a number of autographed books, mm. but most of those were accidental. This particular case was a very well-known writer was actually staying here in my apartment and saw my books and offered to autograph them and informed me that I was a very bad fan because I had not asked him to autograph them. <laughs> and he was going to do it anyway. <laughs> And I have a nice set of autograph books by this very generous. It's such a weird thing to do, though. I mean, like I get going to a book signing in a bookshop, right? Mm -hmm. But you and I, because of our circumstance, have been fortunate enough to like you go out to dinner, you go out to drinks, you meet them here, and to sit there and go, "Oh, by the way, I know we're here at dinner, but here's a bag of books I brought. Would you sign those?" Like, no. That's that's exactly what it feels like. It, it, It feels like you're suddenly sort of you know intruding on your uh, on the personal space that you've established with these people who are who are frequently friends. Yeah, I mean, uh, one book, one writer that I'm a ge- still a genuine fan of. I mean, and I've thought about this because I was sitting there going, "Is my entire memory shot? Do I just not remember the people whose work I love?" Because I'm definitely a fan of Stan Robinson's and could have had more of his books signed than I do, I suppose. And a year or two ago, we were in in Baltimore, Gary. We were in Baltimore for the World Fantasy Convention. Mm-hmm. And our dear friend Guy Gavriel K was there. And he, I was able to get a hold of an advanced copy, and that's reader copy of his most recent book, Brightness Falls from Brightness Long Ago. Brightness Long Ago, right? And he, I got him to sign the ark because his, his, he was there with his publicist, and she gave me the ark, and I said, "Oh, would you sign it?" It was like the very first copy he'd uh-huh. uh, that had been signed, that kind of thing, and that was cute. But uh, it would feel weird to like pack up my first editions of the Fionnivar tapestry and schlep them across to Canada or somewhere and say, would you sign these for me? It was just, mm, no, I couldn't. No, and that, that's, that's, that's my point. That's a different kind of fan behavior. It's, uh, it's a, and, and, and again, we're in a privileged position of being able to know these people and have dinner with them and so forth and so on. It might seem more awkward. Um, uh, but the point is, even when I was a kid and a fan, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to go up to authors and have them sign books because it seemed to me to be an imposition. Now I realize, having been to a number of these world fan, no, it's, it's not. And it's especially not when you go to the mass signings, what they call mass signings, at world fantasy conventions. And there are enormously long lines around certain authors and inevitably sitting next to them is somebody frequently a good friend who has nobody in line at all. Do you ever get the impulse to go back and buy something so they'll have something to sign? But you can't do that because they know you've done that then and that's even worse. It, it Yeah, yeah, that can happen, I suppose, yes. I, I try and avoid those circumstances. Um, I, I guess, I mean, just to expand on something you said a second ago, though, it's really important to 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 emphasize to read read you know listeners here that for writers you coming up and asking them to sign their book you know at a convention or somewhere unless they're sort of in a personal conversation or in a bathroom oh. or somewhere that's it's it's a good thing you know writers want you to buy their books they appreciate and value their readers mm. they want signing books is a fine thing to do it's a weird thing to do but it's a fine thing to do yeah, um I, I, I don't want at all to discourage people from 
from doing that, except in circumstances where you're dealing with a writer who is notoriously needs to be protected. And you and I once, I mean, once in probably at some world con or world fantasy, I, you and I were talking to, to Neil Gaiman about actually about R.A. Lafferty. Yeah, 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 down uh, in Brighton. And, and, yeah, yeah, exactly. And people kept coming up. And at that point, that's not the place where you come up to somebody, which I think was in the green room or something. No, no, that was different. You're talking about in in Denver, Colorado. It, ah. Was it? It was, it was the one where he was the guest of honor of the convention. He was embedded with the uh, writers from the New Yorker who were following him around. And he yeah. wanted to talk about R.A. Lafferty, right. the estate, not the writer. And yes, at that point, there we were in the green room for a private conversation in a corner. And there were people kind of hanging around in a way that was like not really appropriate for that space. And I guess mm-hmm. that's being a little bit clued in. But I mean, that's a real edge case. Here's a yeah. question for you that curls around this because I don't hear it talked about much. I mean, I don't think there's a qualifier for being a fan other than you thinking you're a fan. Yeah, uh, and I, I don't think right. you need to have some sacred talisman or know all the detailed knowledge or be able to tell the difference between the dark saber and the light saber and the yellow saber and the pink saber, right? All that's nonsense. Who cares? The real question for me is now, how does fandom die? Who oh. are you a fan of? And the fandom has died. You just don't mm. care. And I will, we will exempt talking about any living writers in this conversation because that would be cruel. But there are places, times when f- fandom dies. Now, for me, it dies when you pursue the, the later work far too long. You know, they keep writing, you lose interest, you still push on. The, the writing begins to push you away as much as it attracted you once, and eventually it just withers and dies and you read something else. I will give you an example, uh, which is probably fair enough since it's an example not that I came up with, but from a, from a current book I'm editing about Roger Zelazny, mm-hmm. who entered the field with a spectacular display of fireworks. I mean, his, his entry into science fiction in the 60s was probably as spectacular as anybody else's. And Delaney and, 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 and Le Guin and uh, Joanna Russ, all these people were part yep. of more or less the same. And he, he, he wrote some dynamite science fiction novels and started a dynamite, what I thought was a dynamite fantasy series, yeah. uh, The Chronicles of, of Amber. And the Amber series went on longer than it should have, um, and it began to look like um, not a fantasy series. It began to look like the kind of hard-boiled detective stories you would see from Robert Parker late in his career, mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. he was not quite phoning it in, but certainly uh, he did learn how to write one of those things in a week. And the one time I, I met Roger Zelazny, he, I think, was half-jokingly said that if he wanted a new swimming pool in his house, he'd yeah. just write another Amber novel, and everybody would be happy. Um, and I think to some extent, the I, I, was, I was one of those people that looked at every Amber novel you know, with excitement when it came out, and they, they began to get to the point where I lost interest. I think something like this happened with the Dune series, um, where everything was terrific until it wasn't. I think for me, one of the points where you lose me is when I see the pattern. If I see the pattern mm-hmm. in what you're doing, no matter how much I enjoy it, then I begin to lose interest. So, for example, at one point I picked up reading Jim Butcher's The Dresden Files. Mm-hmm. read the first five books in very little time at all and enjoyed them very much. And at the end of the five, fifth book kind of went, 
okay, I get it. I think I can project the entire future of this yeah. all the way to the end. And I hope it's very successful. Go with God. I'm moving on to read something else. And I never read another Jim Butcher book again pretty much from that point. But you have to keep in mind that a lot of people did. And a lot of people, knowing what the next book was going to be, knowing that their expectations... Find it very attractive, and I respect that. They find that enormously attractive. I mean, I never uh, could get more than two volumes into The Wheel of Time. And yet the people I talked to who loved The Wheel of Time could have gone on reading 50 or more volumes of it forever and ever and ever. Amen. Um, I couldn't, I could never have done that, but you know, that's a kind of fandom that I'm, I'm afraid I'm not one of. I think I got two chapters in, but still. Uh, I will say, I mean, I, I, I mean, I was that reader. I mean, in my teens and twenties, I read astonishing amounts of epic fantasy. And the idea that there would be another book in was a very, very mm-hmm. exciting prospect. I still find it kind of surprising to myself that Tad Williams is writing new books in the uh dragon bone chair sequence or whatever else or whatever it was mm. and i i can't summon up any interest i mean i read those books passionately at the time just as i read 15 david eddings novels and pile of raymond feist novels and then it's like well i guess the question is does that make you a bad fan compared to the people who obviously these novels are being published because they're still selling lots and lots of copies to loyal readers um, I, I i don't know i kind of feel a little bit because Part of the one of the models of fandom, if you like, is the the sports fan, right? The sports fan mm-hmm. who loves the team, no matter how good or bad they are. You know, I was yeah. reading, I think I might have mentioned here, Elton John's very amusing autobiography, Me, where he talks about being um, a fan of the Watford Football Club through his, mm-hmm. through his whole life and to the point where he bought the football club, the soccer club, and <laughs> ran it for a chunk of time and all this sort of thing. Elevated it to all times, all kinds of heights, and even now at age seventy-two or three, it would be down at the local ground watching them f- fail dreadfully or win. You know? <laughs> and I'm like, well, if if after a couple of failed novels from so and so, from Mysterious Rider X, I'm kind of like, oh well, well that was a fun ride. I'm gone. Um. I think yes and no. I mean, the 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 flaw with the sports analogy, and and being from Chicago. Where the Chicago Cubs did not win a championship for 108 years, and we're starting in again on that. Um, any given day, this is, this is a, there's a title of a book about football. There's a movie based on the book called Any Given Sunday. Any given day, they can be great. You know, there there are a hundred games a year, and one of them, even even uh, Elton John's Watford people, they might win every once in a while. There's something is spectacular, um, and. The problem is when you're dealing with novels, you're not dealing with 108 games a year. You're dealing with maybe one a year or one every two years. And it's it's, it's, it's more of an investment. Um, but the fact that these long series often, more often than not, consist of very long novels tells me that what you're getting is something um, something more than a literary experience. You're getting an immersive experience which takes you back to a world that you loved uh, and may change it a little bit. As far as I know, and I'm not familiar with most of these ongoing fantasy series, as far as I know, they don't seriously undercut their initial premises. No. Um, they, don't, they don't do, for example, what Gene Wolfe does in what seems like an endless fantasy series, if you count all 12 or 13 volumes of the sure. New Sun, Long Sun, Short Sun, except he subverts everything that you thought you knew in every new set of novels. Um, 
which makes for that kind of loyal fandom, uh, that kind of fandom difficult, I would think. Uh, true, but then if you told me that by the time, well, in fact, if you told me in 1990, say, right, that I would be honestly able to look at a bibliography of Robert A. Heinlein, who for 20 years was my my favorite writer mm. in the world, uh, and I wouldn't pretend that he is now at all, um, and that I would there would be Robert Heinlein novels in the world that I hadn't read, I would have never believed you. But I haven't read, I didn't, you know, like, I think he lost me before The Cat Who Walks Through Walls. And I have no interest in catching up. Like, I didn't read To Sail Beyond the Sunset, um, which looked no, I didn't thoroughly read. awful. The Cat Who Walks Through Walls was thoroughly awful. Uh, the, the novels that they, they excavated from the pit, you know, similarly looked disinteresting. The Spider Robinson collaboration, uh, the new, you know, 666, the number of the monkey of the panko, right, of yeah, the yeah. panko crumbs beast, that thing. Not, not enough fit, no. You know, for us, the living, which was an early, but the thing is, that's a different kind of fandom, I guess. I mean, you're, uh, I, the, the, because those things, and there, there are defenses, there are interesting accounts of those late Heinlein novels by, by Farrah Mendelssohn and Joseph, Joseph Sanders, among others. But the fact is that the people who enjoyed reading them were no longer reading Heinlein novels. They were reading Heinlein philosophy. They were, they, they were fans of Heinlein who I think uh, stayed with them even when the novels became shambolic and unstructured. Um, and I think that may be going on with a lot of these kinds of things. To give this ramble a, a little bit of structure, here's a question. Fandom di- is born. Fandom dies. Where's the mm-hmm. joy in fandom? Of being a fan. And to me, the joy of fandom is the sharing of it. Mm-hmm. That moment where you go, oh, you haven't read whatever it might be. You, you haven't yeah. read The Wild Shore by Kim Stanley Robinson when it first comes out. You've got to read this book. He's terrific. Or, you know, someone else saying to me, have you read Lois Bujold? I'm going like, no, I'm back. Right. I'm, whatever it is. I think that's a joy. Uh, and not one not to be undervalued at all. The, the, the social side of sharing your passion, whether it be Star Trek, Star Wars, or books, or whatever, is 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 the real value of it. I think it is, and I think one of the ways we all, uh, those of us who are, you know, the the, the geeks of this field, uh, that one of the ways you find out that people are close to you that are good friends, are you finding out that there's some of the things. That uh, that you like are the things they like, or that uh, that are, uh, an acquaintance will recommend a book, and it will completely um, convert you to this person should be a best friend because this is a good book. Um, so so I think that's true. I think the the other side of that the other side of that is that, uh, and I I'm talking again about social media and the usual kind of complaint about the venality of social media is that fandom can also become a contest or can become a kind of uh, arena for pointless debate. Um, for example, fandom start, let's just take the degree to which Star Wars fandom is split among those who love The Last Jedi and those who hate The Last Jedi. Um, un- unlike Game of Thrones fandom, which as far as I can tell, is completely not split about the last horrible season. Um, but... Now I see people being attacked for having uh, liked something that other segments of fandom didn't like, or for having. Uh, I'm not. I'm not just talking about the kind of 
residual Gamergate hostility, which is always going to be there. Uh, whenever you have a female main character in any fantasy or science fiction franchise, that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But there is a sense at which uh, fandoms are becoming tribalized. There are pure ideas. I am the real Star Trek fandom or the real Star Wars fandom or the real epic fantasy fandom, and you're not. I might split a hair. I mean, I'm not an expert in this by any means, and I've done no study, no research, so it's just a off-the-cuff thought. And it's this. Fandoms have always been tribal. Mm-hmm. And the example that I, I used to be able to see most clearly, because I wasn't a part of it, but I was kind of parallel to it because I had friends who were caught up in in comics fandom, mm-hmm. uh, you could see back 30 years ago when I would uh, stumble across it, intense DC, Marvel tribes and all this kind of thing. Yeah. The difference, I think, is one that is is those tribes now exist in the current society we live in, which tends to be more toxic, absolute, uh, split in a way that suggests that, you know, if my view exists and you don't share it, it's anathema. So, for example, if you don't, if you don't like The Last Jedi, then you're this, rather than just, oh, it's interesting, why didn't you like The Last Jedi? Yeah. Right. You know? And I think, uh, I guess what I'm suggesting is that that tribalism exists within individual fandoms now. Yeah. You know? There, 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 there are the, 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 the Dark Knight fans and the dark, the people who think the Dark Knight saved the entire Batman franchise and the people who believe it destroyed the entire Batman franchise. Yeah. And that's an interesting discussion to have. The, what concerns me is that uh, I don't see that discussion going on very much. I see a lot of people simply tuning each other out because they don't want to hear the other argument. That, that, um, that may be so, though. I always wonder, again, if you and I are missing some of the discussion. Oh, We, we do live in our own bubble. We, do, we, we live in our own bubble. And what I see on, of course, uh, feeds from uh, from the social media I subscribe to, are people that I follow or people that are friends and so forth and so on. So, yeah, there's definitely a bubble there. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, there is a kind of passion there, which it seems to me the attraction of fandom has always been the passion for something, the passion that uh, that, that would be generated by uh, – well, that, that could be generated by a, a novel like The Vanished Birds we talked about. Um, a couple of things I just got in the mail this week um, – Passion for an, an, a good example. Tor is reprinting classics now. Yeah. They reprinted Maureen McHugh's China Mountain Zhang. Terrific novel. People were really passionate about that novel when it came out. And she's still been a terrific writer ever since. But uh, that novel needs to be rediscovered. And um, there, uh, there might be people today who will look at that novel through a different lens and say, is there an issue of appropriation going on here? I don't know. I don't know either, but I mean, it's interesting to see those, those kinds of series. I mean, the Tor series is interesting because it is a clear parallel, or seems to be, and I'm cautious because mm-hmm. I've not seen, it's interesting. I mentioned in this series, this is this thing called the Tor, Tor Essentials, right? Yeah. And they've got right. this uniform red kind of packaging to them. And I've right. seen two or three titles are slated for it. There's China Mountain Zhang. I think, uh, Mythigo Wood by Robert Holdstock will be in it. I think right. they're doing that massive edition of the Three Californias, yeah, which is uh, the Wild Shore and uh, Gold Coast and Pacific Edge. Yeah, yeah. Pacific Edge being one of, frankly, the great books that none of you are bothering to read. Go read it. Um, uh-huh. It's interesting to see those things happen. I'm curious as to what persuaded Tor to do it. They strike me on the surface as being similar to the Golan's masterworks. 
Exactly. Which are magnificent things in and of themselves. I mean, I must say that the three Californias, I mean, I saw it originally as an arc 20 years ago, 15 years ago. Uh-huh. Uh, and it wasn't published at that time, and then they came back and revisited it. And I'm amazed they have. So it's such, a, it's such an enormous physical object. Yeah, it, it doesn't is. strike me as the most readable physical object. Well, it's 894 pages long, so yeah, um, it, it's and it, it's intimidating. And I think you're right for somebody who, as yourself, thinks the Pacific Edge may be the best of those novels. There's now the question: Do we have to read all of them? And I haven't read them in decades. I read them. I think I've reread Pacific Edge. I do love that uh-huh. book, and I've been thinking about rereading The Wild Shore. Actually, this touches on another thing: holes uh-huh. in your fandom. Oh, like gaping holes. Well, well, no, no. By this, I mean very specifically, right? Something mm-hmm. or someone whose work that you do love, or everyone knows you love, and there's one thing or something that really you kind of should have read. And I'm not talking about to sail beyond the sunset. I mean, it's like turning around and yeah. saying. I'm a fan of Robert Heinlein's, but I've never read The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. I just sort of walk around that book and look at it and move on. Now, Moon is a Harsh oh. Mistress I've read a bunch of times, so that's not it. Now, my example would be big fan of Kim Stanley Robinson. Love his early work. Love his later work. Struggled with the middle work. Not a fan of the Mars trilogy. Didn't finish uh, it. Struggled to really? death through the endless morass of Blue Mars. Um, I could defend that, uh, but I can understand exactly why it happened. Hmm. Um, actually, Blue Mars, uh, Green Mars was the one that slowed me down because Green Mars, about half the novel, seems to be a constitutional convention, which actually now that what's going on in the United States, yeah. maybe we should look at constitutional law. But um, I found uh, I, I found it slow going. I found Blue Mars very good. I also enjoyed the Science in the Capital trilogy. Yeah. which are virtually mainstream novels. And of all the novels he's written, uh, the ones which are most likely already happening to us. <laughs> See, and I'm, also, I'm the one who, like, like I adored Antarctica. Mm-hmm. I, part of the reason I adored Antarctica was, Antarctica was because it was the Mars trilogy in 400 pages. That's exactly what our friend Charles Brown used to argue. Um, and I think you're right. The whole, the, All the issues that are raised in the Mars trilogy can be raised with uh, with Antarctica as well. Um, so the question is, um, a writer you're uh, obviously a follower of that you've not read some core thing by. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I could mention Robinson because I never read Ice Hinge, but that was very, very early. Ice Hinge is, is, is a minor book in in Stan's bibliography, truthfully. Yeah. You know, it's actually a fix-up of some uh, novellas. Mm. And it's interesting. It's worth reading. I like the book, but it's not a major book. Similarly, the, uh, oh god, why have I gone blank on the book? The one that followed it, the, the, the one where he structured a journey Memory through. Of is that the one that's the journey through the solar system, t- uh, structured like a symphony or whatever it was? I think I'm so. I'm blanking on it. But so it's, yeah. maybe it was Memory of Whiteness. That also was maybe a little bit of a challenge. But boy, Whiteness. he got to lay down narrative later on. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I got to, interestingly enough, I I think probably I had just started writing for Locus, and I started reading Stan Robinson with with short fiction, with a planet on the table. But that included stories like Venice Drowned yeah. um, and, and, and stories like The, the, the Lucky Strike. So the, 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 what he was dealing with 
uh, in terms of environmental science and alternate history was unlike anybody else seemed to be doing at the time. Uh, so yeah, he's, he's, I think one of our favorite writers and I'll, I'll keep up with him. And um, now let me ask you this. You, you, to, to be frank about this, the, the, the mm-hmm. writing of Nora Jemison, N.K. Jemison, she's mm-hmm. written off the top of my head, I think, eight novels, I think, seven or eight. Seven. Seven or eight, at least. I mean, there are two trilogies and uh, The City We Became. And yeah. is there one other? I'm not sure. Let's let's say there's not because I'm, I don't think there is, but I can't rule it out. Yeah. I'd have to go back and check. Now, you've you've told us how much you admire The City We Became and what a fine book it mm. is. Does that inspire you to find the time to go back and read the other work that you've not read yet? I've – I mean, well, yes and no. Um, it inspires me to finish the Broken Earth trilogy, which I started but never finished. I don't feel a strong need to go back and look at the 100,000 Kingdoms uh, series. I'm not yeah. sure why. Maybe because the kind of imagination that I've seen in the, – the science fictional imagination in her work appeals to me more than the fantasy imagination, if that makes any sense at all. No, no, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very personal. Uh, yeah, and, and for that matter, the – the, the, the new trilogy, the one that begins with The City We Became, is essentially fantasy. But it's fantasy sort of treated through a yeah. realist slash gritty slash science fiction lens. Yeah. Well, for me, as I shuffle around books and cause noise, create noise in the back of the podcast, the odd one also for me not to have read is Isabel by Guy Gabriel Kay. Really? I've read everything else he's written. Just bounced off that one, book, uh, like just bounced off it. Couldn't tell you why. Uh, I, I, there's an interesting story about that too, which I don't think I told Guy this, but I might have. I taught Isabel once as a con, because I was trying to teach books that had come out within the preceding five years of the class. It was supposed to be very contemporary. Students bounced off of it a lot as well. Yeah. Um, but the interesting thing is when I was experimenting with this, the novel that the students this is probably five or six years ago, the last science fiction class I taught in the university. The novel that the students, most of whom were not science fiction readers at all, absolutely fell in love with was Robert Charles Wilson's Spin. Yeah. And what, what, what that made me think of, and it's some of the same quality that exists with the um, Simon Jimenez novel, is that the, the character relationships are so beautifully drawn out in that the the family relationships in other words it's a mainstream novel with a massive science fiction overview i'm surprised that these things have never been adapted for uh for media uh students who didn't understand science fiction at all understood what was going on in that novel simply at the character level yeah and i think that's one of the things that enables books to cross over is that you i mean Le Guin. the reason i mentioned the dispossessed is that one of my exercises sometimes when I'm falling asleep is thinking, how many character names can I remember from all the science fiction I've ever read? Um, not for programmatic reasons, but because the characters strike me as really vivid people. And when I was very young, uh, not as young as I would like to pretend to be, but when I was pretty <laughs> young, I remember reading The Dispossessed. And to this day, the character of Shivek, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, is one of the more memorable characters I've ever seen in science yeah. fiction. Um, I'm in fantasy, uh, it's really easy when you talk about Terry Pratchett. You can't not think of Sam Vimes. Or, a, I mean, like, frankly, a whole gallery or, of other characters. Yeah, right, exactly. A gallery. Uh, mm-hmm. But I look at, and I also look at sort of what, what 
just recently has really struck passion. I mean, I was going to talk in May because I was going to say that, you know, there's a, the next segue for this, but perhaps as we wind up is what next? And like having read, uh, Tochi on riot baby, which is just mm. out now. Um, just a drivingly, uh, interesting book, very powerful. And one that I, that I enjoyed a, an enormous amount. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm reading an SQ Lu thing at the moment, which hasn't come out, which is great. Um, and waiting to read the next Saad Hussain. There are these writers that I'm, I'm excited about. I mean, I have sitting here, the moment I finished reading the book I'm reading now, the next mm-hmm. book up for me is By Force Alone, which is the Levi Tidhar Arthurian novel. Oh, excellent. Which I have a galley of and am frankly chomping at the bit to read what about you next up no the next thing i've got well after, after this i've got the uh vagabond certainly as soon as uh is, is is next on my list and i just received the jeffrey ford novella from tour.com so i'll be looking out forward of to body that. is that out of body i think it's called yeah yep that looks um, good I, I have a uh oh, there's vagabonds there i have this is a question, a good question for you since you're an editor for tour. Um, Sarah Gailey's Upright Women Wanted, which is a hardcover that looks no longer than a tour novella. Uh, what's, what's your question? I understand it's novel length. Like, my question is, is it a novel? Uh, I believe so. I've not seen a word count, okay. but I believe so. Okay, because it's, it's one of those things. This is where they try to trick people like me who don't do word counts because – Large type, small pages, and 175 pages, of course that's a novel. Let me ask you a question, Gary, because this is a thing, right? Why does it matter? It doesn't matter to me. It never mattered to me at all. You're asking me this. I am the one that's always saying, I don't care, and you're the one that keeps saying, well, for the Locus Awards, for the Hugo Awards, for the the, Awards, we have to have word links. I know, but I guess maybe in the context of the conversation we're having right now, which is as a fan, as a reader, as a like a, as as a reader who takes off the, the you know the, the the lens of being a reviewer or a critic or whatever. Yeah, as long as it's good, doesn't matter. As long as as long as it's good, but as long as there's another more inchoate aspect to it. Sure. If it feels like a novel to me, it's a novel, and yep. this doesn't have to do with any formal requirements. I mean, our our mutual friend Charles Brown used to talk about novella having one single narrative arc and a novel twist. He had some formal definition. Um, it seems to me if something feels like a novel, it's a novel. I don't care if it's actually the length or not. Enough stuff goes on in it. If there are enough characters, if there are enough sub-themes in it, if there's a texture to it, novel to me is as much a matter of texture as it is a matter of length. Um, and by the same token, I've seen things of novel length that had no more than a novella's worth of plot in them. Um, <laughs> Which, which, which is also a problem. It can be. It can be. Now, um, I guess it's probably a good time to, to remind everybody, as we should through the next sort of three or four, five, six weeks, that the Hugo nominations are open mm-hmm. and that they should read widely and nominate uh, what they loved and only what they genuinely loved. But, you know, be, be, you know, be a faithful fan to the, to, the, to the work that you thought was wonderful. It's like uh, I watched... Season four of The Expanse just recently, which is a 2019 uh-huh. product. And that will be on my, uh, I guess what is it? Best 
best dramatic thing long form. It'll be a dramatic thing long yeah, form, yeah, because that was outstanding. Uh, and I look back at some of last year's books, and they will definitely be on the list. And of course, other podcasts, including of course our own. And the other thing, which I think is worth reminding, even though I de- confess I've not even logged in yet is that you can log in and make nominations and go back and change them as much as you want. In other words, you don't have to do it all at once. So the thing to do, uh, the the piece of advice I have, which I was given probably by you, in fact, um, is to go in now, nail down the things you want to nominate, and you can go back in and add more things later. And if you find things that you think are better than the ones you nominated, you can even, I guess, unnominate the ones you did nominate. Yeah, there are a few things which I would feel genuinely badly about if I did not cast my vote for because I believe in them. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I will be, I guess, you know, like uh, on surprise for some reasons, but I would kick myself if I didn't nominate the Gurkha and the Lord of Tuesday, for example, by oh, say in the novella. Uh, I'd kick myself if I didn't nominate the 10,000 Doors of January. I'd kick mm-hmm. myself if I didn't re- re- uh, recommend, uh, nominate Gideon the Ninth. Uh, or Carolyn Joachim's uh, The Archronology of Love, all of which were amongst my kind of favorite pieces of reading from 2019. But mm. they're, they're based on love of the things rather than anything else. I think that's what it's supposed to be based on. I mean, I, I, this is the other thing I, I, I think uh, it's simply passing on folkloristic advice that I received. You don't have to have read everything to make nominations. Oh, no. You don't have to have read 50 novellas to nominate the one or two novels you read that you thought were really good. This is the point of having thousands and thousands of nominees, presumably. Um, if you have a favorite novel or a podcast or a short story or a movie or a TV show or a TV episode that you really think should be nominated, you don't have to compare it with anything else. Just nominate it because you love it. Exactly. And with that, I think we're close enough to the end of a podcast. January's coming to a close. Australia Day is past us, uh, or at least it is here because it's the tw- no longer the 26th of January. Uh, and, you know, we're sort of poised, hopefully, well, we will be back in to, not this coming weekend, but the weekend after with a, with another discussion that we might actually do some preparation for this time, Gary. We might actually do this. Well, actually, we thought about doing preparation and just, well, you know didn't, what happens. Didn't. Okay. We're going to stock right. up on a, and even maybe get a guest in. And so we'll be back in two weeks. Until then, this has been the Cood Street Podcast. Indeed it has. <laughs>